The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hi, my name is Robert Lamb, and this is the Monster Fact Omnibus. That's right, in this special episode of the Monster Fact, please enjoy the first five episodes about monsters and monster-adjacent entities from the Marvel Comics universe. And I say the first five because I think I'm going to dip back into the Marvel universe in the weeks or months ahead. So feel free to send suggestions of popular and well-known entries or more obscure entities from Marvel Comics or other comics uh, for that matter. We'll probably dip back into DC and others in the future as well. So up first, let's consider the mummies of Marvel Comics. First up is Nakantu, the living mummy created by Steve Gerber and Rich Buckler for supernatural thrillers back in 1973. The story goes that Nakantu was a North African tribesman who, after capture by the Egyptians, led a revolt, but was ultimately embalmed alive and sealed in a tomb by an evil priest. 3,000 years later, he awakens in modern times, first as a rampaging monster and ultimately as a monstrous hero who fights alongside the likes of Morbius the Living Vampire, Werewolf by Night, Man-Thing, and others as part of the Legion of Monsters. In addition to his mystic senses, the Living Mummy also boasts incredible strength, which isn't surprising given that Marvel.com lists him at a height of 7 foot 6 or about 232 centimeters. That's two inches taller than Andre the Giant's build height. You might guess then that Nakantu the Living Mummy is the tallest mummy in the Marvel Universe, and you would be dead wrong. Allow me to introduce you to Gomdala, who, like Nakantu, looks like your standard bandage-wrapped undead horror movie mummy, only he's roughly the size of King Kong. Yes, Gondola is a true giant mummy. 
He first rampaged in the pages of Journey into Mystery back in 1960 and is credited by Marvel.com to the legendary Jack Kirby and Dick Ayers. One of the books I source for this series is Monsters, Creatures of the Marvel Universe Explored by Kelly Knox. Knox lists Gondola at a height of up to 60 feet or 18 meters and describes his awakening in a modern Egyptian museum, his subsequent rampage, his pursuit by Interpol, his worship by cultists, and eventually his battles with the Fantastic Four. The secret to his great size, however, is that he's not a mummified human, but an evil robot from another planet that terrorized ancient Egypt before being deactivated and stuck away in a tomb. Like a lot of classic curvy monsters, Gondola isn't only big and physically powerful, he also has other crazy powers like levitation and telekinesis. So at this point, you might be wondering, fine, given all of this, exactly how tall is the tallest mummy actually unearthed in real life? The answer would seem to be 3rd Dynasty Pharaoh Sonicut during the 3rd millennium BCE. By today's height standards, and certainly by Marvel Comics standards, he wasn't too terribly tall, only 187 centimeters, or about six foot one and a half. But for the time period, based on what we know from skeletal evidence, he was considerably taller than average. As discussed in the 2017 paper, Oldest Case of Gigantism, Assessment of the Alleged Remains of Sonicut, King of Ancient Egypt, published in The Lancet, he is still the oldest known paleopathological case of gigantism. The authors, Galassi et al., indicate that skull measurements, photos, bone data, and other measurements suggest gigantism and possibly acromegaly in the facial features, though regressed through age. In analysis of his physical and royal stature, the authors write the following. Quote, the fact that he was buried with honors in an elite Mastaba tomb after reaching adulthood suggests that gigantism at the time was probably not associated with social margination. While short people were much preferred in ancient Egypt, especially in the early dynastic period, we have no records that very tall people had any special social preference or disadvantage. Sonicut was originally unearthed in 1901, so it seems possible that his discovery and subsequent writings about his discovery or treatments of this general theme in other works might have influenced the creation of these two Marvel mummies. But I couldn't find any definitive mention of it. And we also have to consider the influence of things like the, the widespread hoax of the Cardiff giant mixed with just a little good old-fashioned mummy mania. Now to come back to Nakantu the Living Mummy and Gomdala, I have to point out that as far as I can tell, these two never faced off against each other. Comic fans, if I'm wrong, please write in and let me know. Also, to date, neither mummy has crossed over into the MCU or other Marvel movies, but we can only imagine that they are both out there waiting, sleeping, anticipating their release. All right, now let's move on into the world of mutants with Mystique. We're going to continue our look at various monsters from Marvel Comics in this episode, though today's pick is probably better described as a human mutant. It's none other than Raven Darkholm, a.k.a. Mystique, the blue-skinned, red-haired shapeshifter whose various affiliations have cast her at times as a supervillain 
and other times as an anti-hero in the Marvel Universe. Created by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum back in 1978, she has a long history in various X-Men media. Mystique's most obvious mutant power is, of course, her ability to alter her appearance and morphology, taking on the likeness of anyone in her path, often in order to carry out dastardly plots and assassinations. In the excellent book Marvel Anatomy by Mark Sumerak and Daniel Wallace, with illustrations by Jonah Loeb, the authors point out that her shape-changing occurs at a molecular level enabling her to even reproduce the semblance of clothing and additional appendages as needed to enhance a disguise or to aid in combat. She is, in short, the ultimate infiltrator and the ultimate deceiver. Now, on the shape-shifting front, it's tempting to compare her to the natural world's own shape-shifting expert, the Mimic Octopus. But I've discussed that particular species on the Monster Fact already, and besides, I was even more intrigued by something else that the authors mention concerning Mystique's abilities. So advanced is her ability to manipulate her own form, she can actually move vital internal organs around within her body to avoid fatal injuries. Now, this would seem to include sliding her heart out of position and into, say, her upper thigh, or squeezing her brain down into her neck, or partially into her neck, or perhaps even into her arm. Thus, coupled with accelerated healing, she can plot to evade certain death blows, either in disguise or out of it, and this has fooled her would-be killers many times over the years. This ability really intrigued me. I was asking myself, are there species in the natural world that can match or exceed this? And I suppose it depends on how you choose to compare it. Certainly, we can think of various amorphous bodies and start there. We can also think about metamorphosis. During metamorphosis, most of a caterpillar's brain is broken down and ultimately rebuilt into its adult form, which is one of nature's stunning shape-shifting feats. But this is almost too extreme to compare to Mystique's shell game of sensitive organs. We've already discussed the shrew's ability to shrink their brains during the winter, though they don't exactly reposition them. However, during pregnancy, a mother's organs will shift to accommodate the growing fetus. The heart in particular is shifted during human pregnancy, though the exact details vary depending on the individual. The uterus grows, elevating the diaphragm, and pushing the heart upward and kind of to the left. It may also push it forward a little. While the heart itself does not enlarge, the shift in position can lead to a misdiagnosis of an enlarged heart. Likewise, the resulting distortions in the detectable sounds of the heart may require further analysis by a specialist. So that's one perfectly natural way that the human body can and does go moving its heart around. It's not as extreme as the exploits of a human mutant from the Marvel Universe, but it's still absolutely amazing. One final note on Mystique is that according to Sumerak and Wallace, her cellular manipulation of her own body actually rejuvenates her cells with each transformation, vastly extending her lifespan, or even providing her a form of biological immortality. While rare and still very much an area of interest and exploration for natural world scientists, we seem to see something similar in certain varieties of jellyfish and planarian flatworms. 
Though we always have to remember there's a difference between what is likely under ideal lab conditions and what is likely given the challenges of the wild. Mystique has already lived a long life, but the Marvel Universe is a dangerous place, much like the natural world, and she's made no shortage of enemies over the years. But it would be a mistake to underestimate her abilities. Up next, please destroy your other cards here and add plus two power for each destroy because we're going to be talking about the symbiotes. Now, for those of us less familiar with the intricacies of the Marvel Universe, such as familiarity primarily through various films and the 90s Spider-Man cartoon, the basic origin story is pretty straightforward here. Spider-Man acquires a new black and white costume from space that turns out to be a kind of sentient alien ooze. It flows over him, becomes his new costume, it gives him enhanced abilities, but it also becomes clear that the alien symbiont is slowly taking over. Once successfully rejected, the alien suit finds a new host in Eddie Brock, giving birth to the villain and ultimately anti-hero, Venom. Initially introduced in the mid-1980s, the lore and legacy of the alien symbiont suit would continue to grow in Marvel Comics, eventually encompassing multiple Clintar symbionts, as they would come to be known, such as Carnage, as well as a fleshed-out origin story. They are the ancient bioweapons of a dark, stellar deity known as Null, the king in black, overthrown but not killed by his own slimy creations in ages past. Venom stands out as the prime example of a Clintar symbiont merged with a human being. While the case of Spider-Man wearing the alien suit suggests more of an exosymbiont, a layer of living ooze that acts as a kind of organic power armor, Venom is merged with host Eddie Brock, ultimately at a cellular level. It flows over him, encompassing him in a powerful artifice of pseudopods and muscles. This would be exosymbiosis. But it also surges inside him, which would be endosymbiosis. In a similar way, Venom's chaotic offspring, Carnage, manages to merge with host Cletus Cassidy's very blood. In the natural world, symbiosis is a complex topic. At times, it can be tricky to determine just where parasitism ends and some form of mutualism or commensalism begins. A parasitic relationship between two organisms can evolve into mutualism over time, for instance, with a one-sided relationship becoming something more balanced. But symbiosis on its own need not benefit both organisms to be symbiotic in nature. A 2018 Yale study by Shapiro and Turner, published in the journal Evolution, uh, explored mutualistic relationships between bacteria and viruses that were seemingly once parasitic in nature. They found that these changes could evolve in either direction in as little as 20 generations. The paper discusses parasitism and mutualism as both being on the quote-unquote symbiotic spectrum, which is perhaps a term worth keeping in mind when considering the Clintars of Marvel Comics. Some view the Clintars as parasites, others as symbiotic enhancements. Certainly, they can be either in the eye of the beholder, but the exact balance of the change they bring to a host can certainly adjust over time, as we see with Venom, or certainly this relationship could simply evolve over the vast expanse of time since the King in Black first brought them into the cosmos. 
Venom, the alien costume, and the various symbionts are the creation of multiple Marvel artists and illustrators, but the basic idea arises out of the zeitgeist of the mid-1980s, and various assessments have linked the entity to various social and public health issues of the 1980s in compelling ways. From a purely scientific point of view, beyond the mere treatment of symbiosis, Venom and his fellow Clintars would also be examples of a kind of panspermic symbiosis. After all, the origin of the alien suit is somewhere in outer space, right? On one hand, even a highly adaptive symbiotic organism just might not be able to join with an extraterrestrial mode of life. The attempt could simply be ineffective or it could be catastrophic. On the other hand, if one leans fully into the fringes of panspermia hypothesis, then maybe, maybe we'd have enough in common. But again, we're drifting into the unknown and the unprovable here, especially since life on Earth is the only model of life we know. But the symbionts of Marvel are ultimately less concerned with science and more concerned with power, identity, and will. And also with lashing tendrils of ooze, of course. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now on to a classic Marvel superhero, The Thing, from The Fantastic Four. So far in this series of episodes on the monsters of Marvel comics, we've discussed mummies, mystique, and the symbionts. But now, it's clobberin' time. We're of course talking about Ben Grimm, a human test pilot transformed into an orange rock-skinned superbruiser by cosmic rays. The other humans aboard the experimental spaceship would become Mr. Fantastic, Invisible Woman, and Human Torch. And of course, now we're talking about The Thing. All together, they're the Fantastic Four. Grimm's skin is encased in plates of stone reminiscent of the epidermal scales or scoots found on various birds and reptiles, but more importantly, for our discussions here, on a few mammals, namely the extant armadillo and the extinct glyptodont. Though with Marvel's The Thing, these plates are not keratin but some form of indestructible rock. It's the perfect body armor for the sort of superhero who regularly throws down with the likes of Doctor Doom, Frankenstein's monster, and the Incredible Hulk. But I didn't decide to do this episode on The Thing based purely on Ben Grimm's rocky skin. It was actually his fingers that attracted me to the big lug. I don't think I'd ever noticed this myself before, but while human Grimm, of course, had five digits on each hand, Thing has only four. You know, like Mickey Mouse or a character on The Simpsons. In the excellent book Marvel Anatomy by Mark Sumerek and Daniel Wallace, with illustrations by Jonah Loeb, the authors point out that on occasion, special circumstances allow Grimm to retain his human form, including all four original fingers, only to lose one in the transformation back to the thing. The authors and illustrator here speculate that beneath his armor plating, his ring and pinky fingers are fused together into a single digit, and that X-ray imagery would reveal all the bones of two fingers in Thing's outermost digit. I love this detail, but of course, what does it mean? Perhaps nothing, but it's interesting to note that most of us non-superheroes can't move our pinky finger without also moving our ring finger. And the reason for this is that the nerves for these digits are intertwined. Perhaps this anatomical fact has something to do with things tetradactyly. It makes it harder for Grimm to use normal devices, but perhaps the fused finger aids him in grappling monsters and hurling debris during superhero battles. 
A natural world form of this fusing, known as syndactyly, occurs infrequently in humans but is a common feature of some organisms, such as the siamang, a primate native to Sumatra in the Malay Peninsula. They have naturally occurring webbing between their second and third toes, and sometimes the fourth and fifth toes are also webbed together as well. The purpose of syndactyly in the siamang, however, remains elusive. As pointed out by Weisbecker and Nielsen in a 2008 article published in BMC Evolutionary Biology, past hypotheses have explored the possibility that the webbed digits are adaptive for the creature's arboreal lifestyle or for use in grooming. But the authors find these hypotheses unconvincing and stress that it might not be a functional adaptive trait at all. A true explanation remains elusive. Thing's fingers are not merely webbed, however, but tightly fused into a single digit, reminiscent of, say, a whale's flipper. So the comparison is perhaps less than illuminating. We might well compare it, however, to cases of complex syndactyly in the natural world, in which the bones are fused together as well as the flesh. The kangaroo is a great example of this, with its middle toes fused together. According to John Simons in the 2013 book Kangaroo, quote, this seems to have been driven by a change from tree dwelling to ground dwelling, but is now marvelously adapted for hopping. By the way, connecting to our core Stuff to Blow Your Mind episodes on the horse, you might find it interesting to know that the extinct short-faced kangaroo, including the giant Procoptodon actually evolved to feature hoofed single digits on their toes as well. With the thing, however, hmm, I'm going to have to stand by my own hypothesis regarding the fused digits, that somehow this is aiding Ben Grimm in clobbering time. But I would love to hear from anyone out there if you have a hypothesis regarding the curious hands of the thing. Finally, let's consider one last weird entry with Ulvar, the giant. The Marvel Comics universe is full of giant monster conquerors with crazy powers, and yet a giant by the name of Ulvar manages to stand out. A creation of Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, and Jack Kirby from a 1960 edition of Journey into Mystery. The story as recounted in Monsters, Creatures of the Marvel Universe Explored by Kelly Knox, actually begins with another giant alien conqueror, Gigantes the Atlantean, who arises from his undersea kingdom to lay claim to coastal San Diego and also presumably the world. After poking around the surface world for a bit, staking out the claim, if you will, Gigantes returns to the waters to report back home to Atlantis. And here he encounters an even taller, even more intimidating giant standing in the ocean. It is Ulvar. Ulvar stands a good thousand feet or 304.8 meters tall and absolutely towers over the puny Atlantean far beneath him. In a booming voice, it proclaims that Earth is now the property of the planet Centaurus II, so hands off. This, of course, leaves Gigantes with no other option but to return home to the ocean depths in defeat. It's only then in the comic that it's revealed that Ulvar is not an alien conqueror at all, but a giant decoy built by humans to scare away their would-be conquerors. 
The illustrations in Knox's book reveal that Olvar was atomic-powered and commanded from a central control room inside the body. Yet, this is not a fighting robot, like your Mechagodzillas or your Voltrons. No, Olvar was nothing but a highly successful technological bluff. Later, we learn that Olvar was eventually dismantled. So complete was his victory, and his head now rests on the ocean floor. Now, I loved this story the moment I read it. Such a ridiculous twist. But I was at a loss as how to really tie it into anything on the monster fact, you know, aside from decoys and scarecrows, which we may come back to this Halloween on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. But then I heard the story of Italian fisherman and conservationist Paolo Fancioli, as detailed in a 2020 Guardian story by Giorgio Giglioni, Italian law already banned environmentally destructive trawling nets in its waters, and Tuscan authorities took to dropping blocks of concrete on the sea floor to disrupt the nets of illegal trawlers. But Fancioli and others noticed that these were spaced too far apart to make much difference. With permission, he began to sink more blocks of stone, but decided to take things in a more artistic direction. A local quarry donated a hundred blocks of granite, and local artists volunteered to shape them into stone guardians that now occupy an underwater sculpture garden to both deter illegal fishers, but also to attract scuba diving tourists. Like Olvar, they serve as stone guardians on the seafloor, though they're a direct physical deterrent rather than a communicative one. Now, another possible connection to make uh, with the real world and Ulvar here, would be the concept of using artistic creations such as sculpture to warn future generations about radioactive sites. The Landscape of Thorns concept by architect Michael Brill, proposed in 1993, is one of the more evocative of these. Proposed for the U.S. Department of Energy report for the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, or WIPP, it envisioned a series of jagged concrete thorns emerging from the ground of a radioactive site. This was one of several proposed long-term nuclear waste warning messages from the 1993 Sandia National Laboratories report that included other threatening works of stone or earth, but no giant aliens. At least with the fictional Ulvar example, humans knew who to direct the message at. Gigantus, the Atlantean. In the comics, they'd already met him. They'd seen him around the surface world. But creating a non-linguistic message for human beings 10,000 years in the future is another matter altogether. Finally, Ulvar can be thought of as a kind of tongue-in-cheek opposite to the Pioneer plaque that would be later placed on board the 1972 Pioneer 10 and 1973 Pioneer 11 spacecraft, serving as a kind of time capsule, but also potentially as a message to alien beings. This is what we are, and here is what we were. Olvar's message, however, is simply, don't mess with us, we're a thousand foot tall monsters. Tune in for additional episodes of The Monster Fact each week. As always, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues 
pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.